The following sermon was recorded from the worship service of Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. May God use the reading and preaching of His Word to accomplish His purposes in your life. Thanks for listening. We're going to uh, spend some time now uh, doing another thing that the enemy hates, and that is opening up the Word of God, asking that God would shape and mold us according to it, that we would be people who would believe and obey the Word of God. Last week, we started uh, a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible with you uh, in your home, we're going to have words on the screen as well, but I think it's good to have the, the text of Scripture right in front of you. Uh, Nehemiah is in the beginning of the first half of the uh, Old Testament. Uh, and if you're not familiar with your Bible, you can always look in a table of contents there in the beginning to find the book. I'm, I'm having a hard time finding it myself right now. <laughs> Here we go. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So I'm in Esther, so i got to go back just a little bit. So, book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 2. Last week, we were in chapter 1. We go through a book of the Old Testament every year in the, in the weeks leading up to Christmas uh, as we look forward to in anticipation to the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. We want a book of the Bible who's going to point us to the hope that we have in him. And Nehemiah does that. Here's what we saw in chapter 1. In case you weren't with us last week, or for a reminder for those who were, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we were introduced to this man named Nehemiah, who was living in Susa, the citadel, the capital, the winter capital at least, of the great Persian Empire. The year is about 446, 445 B.C., and Nehemiah is living in near the Persian Gulf in what is modern-day Iran in this capital of Susa. But he is one of the people who has been in exile in that place and was formerly from the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And so when somebody comes to him from Jerusalem, he asks them for a report of how things are going with the remnant of God's people. That is, those who had been in exile but are now being moved back to, some of them chose to move back to Jerusalem. He wonders, how's it going back there with them? And he finds out in chapter 1 that things are not going well. The wall's broken down, gates have been destroyed. And so Nehemiah, being a man of considerable leadership potential, and with lots of ability, we'll see him even in today's chapter, take action. But in chapter 1, rather than taking action immediately, he stops and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays for days. And the rest of chapter 1 was just the content of Nehemiah's prayer. And then there was this little clue at the end of chapter 1 as to how God was going to provide an answer for his prayer. Nehemiah, it says, is cupbearer to the king. So today we come to chapter 2, and it's about four months later as we come to chapter 2. So let's go ahead and just look at, at least for now, the first three verses uh, of Nehemiah chapter 2. Here's what God's word says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? See, Nehemiah was doing a risky thing there. Nehemiah, who was a servant, he was the cupbearer to the king, so a very significant servant, but still a servant. It wouldn't have been proper for a servant to show those kind of emotions in the presence of the king and tell the king what's on his heart. It's not what servants are supposed to do. And so that's why it says there in verses 1 through 3 that Nehemiah was very afraid when the king was noticing his sadness. And he has the courage to explain, here's why I'm sad. It's because of the report he had gotten of what's happening in Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? Listen to how verse 4 ends. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then verse 5 will begin. And I said to the king, We know that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. That's what we saw there in chapter 1. But notice here in chapter 4 that before he answers the king, to the king asking him, well, what are you requesting? Nehemiah might be remembering that this is the very same king who we could read about from Ezra chapter 4 who heard a report that these people from Jerusalem were actually rebels and so he wrote a letter authorizing people to stop them from doing the work. That would make me afraid. And so he was afraid, and so what did he do? He prayed. And then, it must have been a pretty quick prayer, because the king asked the question, and so really quickly he just, okay, God, help me with this. And then, boom, he's going to answer right away there in verse 5. So let's read verses 5 and following. Well, hold on. Before we do that quick point of application, you ever been afraid of anything? Anxious? about anything, there should be, hopefully in your life, like there are in mine, regular times of prayer, times where you spend a little more significant amount of time. Maybe your time is in the morning, you read the Word, and you open up God's Word, and you, and, and you pray. Uh, you have a list of things and people that you're praying for there in the morning. You let God's Word guide you in prayer. In our family, there's lots of different times in the day where we pray. We pray before meals. We pray before bed. Kirsten and I pray a couple times at night. Right? We pray in the van on the way to school. All sorts of different times for us to pray when we do family worship. Lots of times where we block off. During this time, I'm going to pray. But it's also good when all of a sudden you're struck with some sort of emotion. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's temptation to sin. Whatever it is, that we just stop where we're at. And just for a moment, that's all we have time for. That's all Nehemiah had time for here, that we just stop and we pray. I think we can learn that here from Nehemiah. I mean, he was afraid. What if the king was offended by his request? Like I told you, Nehemiah certainly knew the history and what had happened according to Ezra chapter 4. But he prays, and then he answers the king. What is the answer? Let's look at verses 5 through 8. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, 
if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors and to the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Longer prayer recorded, days of prayer in fact, we were told in chapter 1. All I think preparing for this moment, we can tell that he's made some plans, hasn't he? He's been making some plans. He knew what kind of letters he needed. He knew that he would be needing some timber in order to complete this project. But he has the courage, after this quick short little prayer, after the king says, what are you requesting? He has the courage to make some pretty bold requests. And the king grants him authorization. Why? Why did the king grant him authorization? Was it because Nehemiah was a really good schmoozer? Like he knew how to talk. He was smooth. Was it because the king forgot what he had previously said? And that's recorded back in Ezra 4? Those aren't the answers the text gives. What does the text say? Why was it that the king would grant this kind of access and authority to Nehemiah? Did you hear how Nehemiah described it at the end of verse 8? And the king, king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Have you ever been really anxious about something? Prayed about it a lot. And then when it comes right to it, it just like works out totally fine, like it wasn't even a big deal at all. Maybe you had some news to share with your boss. Maybe you had a hard conversation to have with a friend. You worried about it. You prayed about it. You practiced how you would say what you were needed to say, and then you come to do it, and it went totally fine. Well, does that mean you did a really good job of wording it just right? Well, if you hadn't prayed about it, you would be tempted to think that. You'd take credit for, hey, be good. But if you knew that you couldn't do it on your own, and you prayed, and then it turned out fine, well, then God gets the credit. When we pray and things work out, God gets the credit. Or as Nehemiah put it, What's his answer for how, how everything worked out so well? For the good hand of my God was upon me. So, Nehemiah has prayed. He obviously made some plans. He knew what letters he would need. He knew where to get the wood, all of that kind of stuff. He had made the request. The king granted him authorization to move ahead with the project. Now it's time to go. Action plan. Verses 9 through 16. Let's just read through First 9 through 11. He's got to travel. He's got to get there. He's many, many miles away. In modern day Iran, getting over to modern day uh, Israel. Here's what we read, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of of the people of Israel. So we're introduced to there in verse 10 to these two characters that we're going to hear from again who will be causing some trouble. 
But Nehemiah is making this trip, about 900 miles. It would have taken about three months to make this trip. Making the trip now, is he going to get right to work? Actually, let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 12. Then I arose in the night. Uh, Wait, I didn't finish verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. So he's going to all of these different places, uh, these real spots. He identifies the spots that he's going to do some inspection. He's doing it at night more secretly. Verse 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. See, Nehemiah was a wise leader. He's the new guy in town, and he better get a good handle, he figures, on the situation that they have there if he's going to get the support that he needs to accomplish the project that God has sent him there to do. The project that God had sent him to accomplish was really quite massive. Is he going to be able to assemble the team? Is he going to get people behind him to go along with this plan? Well, let's look, and here's the final point of the message. Rise up and build. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He reminds them of their situation. Yeah, it didn't look good. He told them what he wanted to do and his plans to do it, and why he wants to do it. But what convinces them? It seems what convinces them, in verse 18, is that he told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. What motivated the people to do this risky and dangerous thing? They've tried it before, and it didn't go so well. Why would they say all together, let's rise up and build? Is it because Nehemiah was a really good pep talker? I think it was because they were convinced that what Nehemiah said was true, that the hand of the God of heaven was on them for this. I want to talk more about that here in a point of application in a bit, but let's finish up these last two verses because we know this, don't we? That just because the hand of God is on us for good doesn't mean there's not going to be opposition, right? You don't just know the hand of God is upon you for good when everything goes smoothly. Sometimes when the hand of God is upon you for good, as you do a risky 
thing, in obedience to him, you're going to face opposition. We're going to see that in this book, and we get a clue about it here in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I love verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That is a bold response to some powerful people who are opposing him. And it's not bold because Nehemiah has bigger muscles and a better plan. It's bold because he knows that it's the God of heaven who will cause them to prosper. That, that we're just his servants. That's all we are. He's not puffing up his chest before these people. He's just saying we're dependent on God to provide what we need. And I love that confidence in God that we see in Nehemiah. I told you I'd have a point of application. I think you can see it there, can't you? And it would be this, that we can do risky, obedient things when we know God's hand is on us for good. We can do risky, obedient things when we know that God's hand is on us for good. Why did Artaxerxes grant authorization to Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah said in verse 8, it's because God's hand was on him for good. Why did the people who previously had faced all kinds of opposition and setbacks, why were they able to, to say together, let's rise up and build? It's because Nehemiah had told them that the good hand of God was on him for good. This was going to work, not because Nehemiah was really good at being a general contractor or a motivational speaker. This was going to work because people were willing to take a risk. Because they were being obedient to God's plan. And they were resting in the belief that God's hand was on them for good. And so we too can do risky, obedient things when we know that God's hand is on us for good. You know how comforting a parent's hand is to a scared child? I remember teaching our kids how to ride bikes without training wheels. My hand would either be on the seat or on their back and I would tell them, I've got you. When a kid hears that daddy's right here, or mommy's got you, they're much more brave, aren't they? So what risky thing is God calling you to do? Who are you supposed to share the gospel with? You can do it, not because you're a great evangelist who knows all the right words all the time, but because Jesus, who, who commanded us to go and make disciples, is the one who it also says right there in the Great Commission, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why we can do the work that God calls us to do, the risky, obedient work of making disciples, of sharing the gospel. Why? Because behold, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Maybe you've sensed God calling you to do some, some big change, but you're nervous, you're not sure how it's going to work out. I'd encourage you to take a faithful step of obedience, not because you're brave or because you have everything all worked out, you know how it's going to go, but because you really believe the promise from Romans 8.28, that God will work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
we can do risky, obedient things when we know that the hand of God is upon us for good. There's a lot for us there in Nehemiah chapter 2, but as I've said, all of the Old Testament points us ahead to Jesus. So how do we get from Nehemiah chapter 2 to Jesus? Well, in John 13, we have come to the week of Jesus' death by crucifixion. John 13.1 says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He was going to carry out the Father's plan to love his disciples by dying for them. That's what's happening here in John chapter 13. And the reason I'm turning to John 13 is because of these words. John 13 chapter, chapter 13 verse 3 says this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. The good hand of the Father was on the Son. And the Son was given authority to choose to use it to serve. And so right there in chapter 13, Jesus, uh, Jesus is going to bow down and wash the feet of the disciples, calling them to love and serve one another in the same way. All is a foreshadowing of what he was about to do. Loving them by giving up his life for them on the cross. Jesus knew what he had come to do, to serve, first by washing the feet of the disciples and ultimately by dying on the cross, so that we get to Luke chapter 23, talking again about the hand of God. Luke 23, 46 says this, just before Jesus took his final breath, hanging on the cross, what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus submitted himself giving up his authority, his privileges. He gave up his rights. He gave up his life in submission to the Father's good plan that he would die in our place so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have forgiveness of sin, so that we could be reconciled with the Father. I'm so grateful that the Father gave all things into the hands of the Son and that the Son gave himself up into the hands of the Father as He died on the cross for us. I hope you have accepted the free gift of salvation that comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If not, I'd love to talk with you. Give me a call sometime this week. Looking forward to continuing on in the book of Nehemiah. We'll be doing this again uh, next week in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to get through two of the chapters together next, next week. Let's close our time together today in prayer. Oh, Father, I am so thankful for your promises. We hold on tightly to them in a time where a lot of circumstances around us are changing. We're thankful that you're a God who does not change. I pray that you would be help us to be a people who really believe your promises. And the people who are obedient, willing even to do risky, obedient things because we know that your hand is on us for good. Thank you for all the ways you've already answered prayer. Thank you for the ways that you're lining things up even now to answer the prayers that we pray before you. I pray that you would give courage to those who are afraid or anxious right now. That in their fear and anxiety that they would turn to you as Nehemiah did when he stood before the king. And that they would be able to look back and see already in their life how many times your good hand 
has been upon us and that we would be able to look back at this time, a few months from now, to look back and to say, oh God, thank you that your good hand was upon us for good, even in challenging circumstances. We love you. More importantly, we're really thankful that you love us. You love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. We are grateful and we give our lives into your good hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me do this. Let me, before we uh, close, just send us out with a reminder that seems appropriate uh, again for this week, and that is from the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, the very end of that chapter says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. More information about Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church can be found at our website, www.ifefree.org, or you can call the church office at 641-648-3305. That's www.ifefree.org, or 641-648-3305.